Good morning, friends. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Nice. So good to be with you once again. We have a lot to cover today, so I'm going to dive right in. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for your love, God. God, thank you so much you are here with us. Man, I keep thinking about that chorus. What a friend you have been. God, you've been so, so good. I know you've been so good to me, and I know there's many of us today who can confess the same thing. So God, with that goodness in mind, would you lead us today? Would you speak to us? Give us ears to hear you. Pray this your name. Amen, amen, amen. <clears throat> so I've been, in recent years, whenever Black History Month comes around, I have taken to tr at least trying to read some sort of story from the past to sort of uh, familiarize myself because for a long time, I just didn't even think about Black History Month, which maybe sounds a little weird and wild because your boy black. <laughs> so you wouldn't guess. But for a long time, it just wasn't something I did not consider how uh, the, the actions of the courageous in the past have affected us today. And so in recent years in life, I have taken to looking into history just for my own, just to grow, just to learn. And uh, this time around, I have been reading about this painting by W.T. Carlton. I have a picture of it. And it's a little hard to see. Um, I have another, another copy of it in, in my next slide, which is a little bit easier to see. But it's called Watch Meeting, Waiting for the Hour. And this guy, W.T. Carlton, he painted this picture depicting a group of slaves waiting for the Emancipation Proclamation to come down and from, uh, from President Abraham Lincoln. And, and it's just been so compelling to me uh, this week. I've just been been watching, I've been thinking about it. Here we have it on um, one of these interesting cards. Um, it's, I was doing a whole deep dive. This is a whole uh, aside, but I was doing a whole deep dive and how there was a time period right before like photographs became really, really popular where they would use these little uh, black and white photographs, kind of like in the very early part where pho photography was just coming into being used. They would use these little photographs as almost like a, an early form of social media, like trading cards. So people would get their picture taken and then they would like just carry them around in a pack and then they would, they would trade them with one another um, in around like the, the, the mid 1800s. But this guy, W.T. Carlton, he paints this picture of this group of slaves waiting to hear that they were emancipated. And man, I just, I've been looking at it kind of all week and, and, and just thinking, man, I just, I've been trying to, to put myself in the, in the picture. I've, I've been trying to, I just think it, 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 it must have been electric in the room, don't you think? Like as men, women, and children, those considered property from birth, right? Many of them, the only life they had ever lived the only life they had ever known was to be owned by someone. As these men and women and children, they, they waited for word of something that I assume many of them perhaps had not even considered possible in their lifetime. A word that many, many of them probably had not even considered could ever be true about them, which is free. And I just feel like, man, what it, what, what it must have been like to be waiting for that good word to be waiting for that gospel, that good news, that, man, I once was a slave, but now I'm free. And I think, I think legitimately we're so far removed that we, we cannot put ourselves into the mindset easily. But I, 
I think I just want us to try just for a moment because I think sometimes, a lot of times we're reading the scriptures, I've said it all throughout the series in Galatians, over and over, it seems as though there's so many like words that are theological and big and intellectual and uh, in Galatians 5, Paul uses some more of them, but I just want us to try to f- feel it for it to be a little more grounded. Man, what it must have been like to be the property of someone else, to not know what freedom is, and then for a word to come and say, you are free. To be a slave since birth, and now you're free. This is the imagery that I think Paul is trying to get at at Galatians chapter five as he opens. Now, a quick PSA. I have broken Galatians five in half just because, uh, before we dive in, I've broken Galatians five in half just because It's so rich, there's so much. Originally I was planning only six weeks, but now I'm thinking we may have to do one more just because there's so much and I don't wanna be here for an hour. And I know you guys are, you gotta be hungry and I'm hungry too. So we're gonna get out of here. But, um, so yeah, today we're just gonna cover the first half of Galatians 5 and then I'll, I'll circle back. So Galatians 5, chapter 5, verse one. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Seems like we can almost hear the emotion in Paul's words, right? He's like, you're free. You're actually free. Like, you're not a slave anymore. You once were, but no longer. Also, Z, I don't know if I'm in the monitors, but I feel a little hot in the monitors. You can turn me down a bit. Thanks. So Paul comes in. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he's saying, you're actually free. This isn't a game. This isn't a joke. Like, freedom has come. It's actually here. So don't turn around and go back into slavery, right? Now, this would have hit, I think, for original readers because first century, these people lived in a world where slavery was just a part of reality, right? One Roman historian, Gaius, he writes, the principal distinction made by the law of nature is this. He's talking about the law of nature, right? This is the way the world works, he says. All human beings are either free people or slaves. Wow. So this is kind of the world that these people lived in. Slavery was just as ubiquitous and and it was just a common everyday thing. It wasn't good, evil, right, wrong. It just was. It was just a part of their life. So they were intimately familiar with the, the concept of being born a slave. And so for Paul to come and say, you're free. It must have been painted very vivid images for these people because for many of them, they probably maybe had once been slaves. Now in this time period, oftentimes you'd become a slave if you had a debt to pay, you would go into slavery, you know, uh, you know, or indentured servitude with a family or something like that, it's just so you could pay off your debt. So it would have been temporary perhaps, or sometimes maybe you were a, a prisoner of war, so you'd be captured. You know, Romans are always conquering people. That's one thing about Rome, they're conquering everybody. So every time they'd conquer some people, they'd take a lot of slaves. When they conquered uh, Israel the last time, they took over 90,000 slaves. So there's a lot of slaves in Rome, and a lot of people were slaves. And slaves, they actually, it was a little different than chattel slavery that we had over here in the West, but um, still, a lot of the people in that time period would have known what it was like to be a slave. And so I circle back to my picture, the watch meeting, Waiting for the Hour by W.T. Carlton, because I think that it paints a picture for us of an anticipation that it's difficult for us to understand. And I want to I just read um, 
this quote for you by Frederick Douglass. I think I got a picture of, of Freddie here. Uh, I'm calling him Freddie. By Frederick Douglass, he, he, he writes this. I don't have it on the screen. I just want to read it, and I, I want us to listen to it here. Because um, he, he writes a description of being at one of these watch meetings. He says, the scene was wild and grand. Joy and gladness exhausted all forms of expression, from shouts of praise to joys and tears. He's describing when the news hits, the Emancipation Proclamation came down and the news hits in the room. Years later in his life, he reflects back on the moment. He says, can any colored man or any white man friendly to the freedom of all men ever forget the night which followed the first day of January 1863 when the world was to see if Abraham Lincoln would prove to be as good as his word? I shall never forget that memorable night when in a distant city I waited and watched at a public meeting with 3,000 others, not less anxious than myself, for the word of deliverance which we have read today. Nor shall I ever forget the outburst of joy and thanksgiving that rent the air when the lightning brought to us the Emancipation Proclamation. Gives a little, sends sends a little shiver down the spine where he says, the lightning brought us the Emancipation Proclamation. It felt like lightning in the room when all of a sudden something that could not be tasted was now allowed to be tasted. You're free. What an announcement. And so Paul, in Galatians 5, he says the same thing to us. You are free. Now, some, some context. Circle back just for a second. Some context about Galatians. We've been in this series on Galatians for the past few weeks. If you've been here, if you've been joining us, bless. So glad you have been with us and honor. We are carrying through. We have a, a, just a couple more weeks left. And in case you haven't been with us, a little bit of context about the book of Galatians. Paul is writing to a collection of churches where the issue of primary identity is at hand. Primary identity. What is your primary identity? Is it Jew first or is it Christian first? What is your primary identity? Is it your race, nationality? Is it your creed, your history, your family? Or is it that you're a follower of Christ? What is your primary identity? This is being debated in a lot of these churches that Paul's writing to. And so he had taught them when he was there that for the believer, personal faith in Christ alone was enough to make one right with God. Two things, to make one right with God. And number two, to enter into God's family, to be a part of this family that God is making in the world. But there were a few, you know, there are a few spies, Paul almost seems to say, amongst these churches that were going around and they were preaching something counter to what Paul had preached. They're preaching what he describes as a false gospel, a counterfeit gospel, something that wasn't true. Essentially, they were saying, no, the only way to enter into God's family isn't just by faith alone, but you actually have to follow very specific laws and rituals. You have to join and be, pretty much become a Jew in order to be a Christian. And so Paul pushes back. And so we find in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul pushing back a little bit. And this is what he says. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. And this is really what he's been getting at the entire time. We've been talking kind of around this idea, law, works, faith, love, like what's, what's all going on here? But this is really, if I had to, we had to hammer home, this is really what he's been getting at the entire time. It's almost like that part of like a movie. You guys ever been in a movie? You're watching the movie, and then one of the characters in the movie says the title of the movie, and you're just like, you're like, oh, 
This is the moment. Or you're reading a book. You're like reading, you know, The Incredible Life of Snails. And as you're reading The Incredible Life of Snails, all of a sudden the author says, and thus was The Incredible Life of Snails. And you're like, ah! You're like, wow, that's, that's the moment. That's the thing. This is the big idea. Well, this is exactly what Paul's doing in, uh, in, chapter, in chapter five, verse six here. This is the big idea. This is the central core idea. Faith working itself out through love. And so what is the big idea? Here's what it is. I'm going to tell you what it is. If you forget everything else today, this is the big idea. We could never by ourselves on our own power, save ourselves by being good enough. We could never, no matter how high we climb the mountain, no matter how, how hard we tried, no matter how many boxes we checked, no matter how perfectly we kept the Sabbath, no matter if you were a vegan, vegans out there, I love you. I've been vegan before. But the chicken was calling my name. Never mind. That's not what we're, that's not what we're talking about today. Uh, man, I moved to Texas. You, you did this to me. Man, I was a vegetarian before I moved here. You did this to me. Um, man, we could never on our own power be good enough. We could never live up to God's standard of love. It's too high. And so, because God is love and he knows that, he comes and he says, that's okay. You could never have enough righteousness that's okay. Trust mine. Trust my righteousness. Not only trust my righteousness, but trust me. And oftentimes I think the answer that we give is, but God, what about the standards? God, what about the rules? God, what's going on? What, what, what's right or wrong? If, if, if all that matters is love, you can just do whatever you want. Like all, you know, this is like we're in the, you know, the 80s, you know? Well, is it 80s or 70s? I'm, I was born in 91. So y'all who were alive in the 80s, were the hippies in the 80s or the 70s? 70s, blessed. Um, wait, Zoya, you just said that you were, you were, you're like my age, but you're, you know, more history than me. Bless. Um, I appreciate you. That's why we need to surround ourselves with wise people. Um, yeah, like I think that's our, often our, our answer, right? Like all we need, if, if all we need is love, then what about the rules? What about the standards? I guess it's just anarchy. We're just, it's going to be the purge out here. What's going on? And that's why Paul says, no, actually, here's the guardrails. These are the guardrails. It's faith, yes, but faith working itself through love. Love is the guardrail. And really, love is actually calling you to a higher standard, a more costly standard than laws ever could. Laws are finite. Love is infinite. So love calls us higher. Love calls us higher than than rules, than lists ever could. So here's the question for us. Paul spends a lot of time in Galatians talking about this false gospel called legalism, salvation by works. And I guess the question is, why, like, why are we so predisposed to legalism? Like, what's going on here? Why is it so difficult for us? It seems, it seems like it's difficult for us. And I, this is, you know, my, in my experience as a pastor, the number of times I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, I'm str- I feel like I, I feel like I'm a legalist. In fact, I had a student tell me that just a month ago. I think I'm a legalist. Can you help? It's not like it's AA. Hello, my name is Anthony Lauder. I think I'm a legalist. Um, actually, that, that, could be, that could be a vibe. Actually, I'm not mad about that. Um, but I guess that's the question for me. And one answer I think we find is from a psychologist named Kohlberg. Now, those of you who are psych majors in the room, you've probably heard of Kohlberg or psychologists, professors. You've heard of Kohlberg. Uh, he's a pretty prominent psychologist in the 1950s, and he has an interesting theory called the theory of moral development. Now, he, he proposes sort of this system of which every person, 
develops over time as they get older, they grow up, they start as a kid, they grow up, they become an adult, that they pass through certain key levels of moral development. I wanna show you up here. Essentially, here we have my little triangle. Don't you like that, man? That was great. Um, sometimes you gotta pat yourself on the back for making a good graphic. Um, so here we have, we're gonna dumb it down. There's a lot of words here. It's, it, it looks, it's, there's a lot of data. So here's what we have. We have three main stages that Kohlberg proposes. He proposes stage one is the pre-conventional stage. This is, you know, sort of when you're a kid all the way into adolescence, he says. Then we have stage two, the conventional stage. This is adolescence into adulthood. And then three, the post-conventional stage. That sort of kind of happens in your adulthood, but he postulates doesn't always happen to all people. Now I want to talk about sort of how this works. So essentially what he says is there's two main mini stages within each stage. In the first stage where you start off as a kid, all you pretty much like base your life around, your moral decisions, is how can I avoid punishment? This is punishment and obedience. This is for the little kids. This is for when parents say, hey, don't do that because that's wrong because I said so. And when you're really little, you don't really ask why. It's not important to you. You just, you just do whatever your parents tell you to. These are the rules, I, I just follow. Then as you get a little older, there's a bit of a self-interest. So you begin to ask questions, why? Why do I need to do that? Why should I brush my teeth? Well, we learned a couple weeks ago, that's why you should brush your teeth. I shared a couple weeks ago how I had 16 cavities. So brush your teeth, fam. Uh, self-interest, what's in it for me? What's going on, why? And sometimes, you, when you're in this stage, this is the, the stage of self-interest, right? Sometimes you can even get to the point where you're like, hmm, I'm kind of willing to pay the cost because of just what, what I'll benefit from it. It just feels good in the moment, so I'm just gonna do it. And that's kind of how we make decisions when we're younger, sometimes when we're older too. Sometimes we're like, man, that cookie, I know I shouldn't eat it, but man, is it good, so I'm gonna eat it anyway. This is the, uh, the stage of self-interest. Then we move into societal conformity. This is where we begin to look around a society. We, we begin to look at social norms. Oh, interesting. This is how we do it here. This is, this is what's going on. This is what it means to be a good person. So I'm going to conform to those norms. Then we move as we get older into adulthood into law and order. And the question really at the heart of this is, what are the rules? What is the law? I'm going to obey the law. And sometimes that's in conjunction with like, what is my duty? What is my responsibility as a law upholding citizen, right? My duty as a law abiding citizen is to not speed because I don't want to harm other people. I wouldn't like it if other people sped and hit me, so I'm not going to speed, right? Keeping the law. Now we're going to pause there because the stage of law and order, what Kohlberg postulates is that a lot of people, this is where they end and stop on the theory of moral development, on the triangle. This is where they just pause. They never move beyond the law and order stage. And this is what we find, what, you know, what he postulates is what we find a lot of the time in religions is a lot of people, they reach this stage of law and order and they stay there for the rest of their life. This is all there is, law and order. What are the rules? And so a lot of us, we approach religion with the same question. What are the rules? What are the laws? What are the goods and the bads, the do's and the don'ts? What's the checklist? And frankly, it's easier. It's much easier to just ask, man, what's the checklist? Okay, I gotta go to church on Sabbath, got it. Okay, that's the checklist, I'm good to go. As long as I check the, check the box, we're good to go. Law and order. But what he says is a lot of people, what they don't do is transcend to the final two stages. And now these stages are not a matter of age, but maturity. The first one is the social contract stage. And this is where pretty much 
people would say, hmm, in order to have a safe society, we, we agree by certain rules and we agree by certain values, essentially, right? Kindness, compassion, generosity. In order to have a good society, it's sort of like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Sort of moving beyond just what are the, what are the rules? No, well, we, don't, we, we can move beyond the rules a little bit to sort of, you know, the golden rule. Then finally, at the, at, the, at the very top, is what he calls timeless principles. And what he sort of describes this as the principled conscience. These are moral decisions guided by one or more higher, higher principles that always lead to positive outcomes. And what he suggests is the guiding principle of the universe, the best one, the one that all the universe is going towards, is justice. And I have a little graph of that. He says, this is where it's all headed, is justice. And reality sort of confirms this in a lot of ways. This is where a lot of our societies have headed in the 21st century. This is the American experiment, right? All men are created equal under God with certain inalienable rights, right? That everyone deserves justice no matter who you are. So he says justice is at the pinnacle. But Paul says something different. Let's take a look. What Paul seems to be saying, and we see this in verse 6 that we read before, is that love is actually at the top. That love is the timeless guiding principle. Now, this is very countercultural, friends, especially today. Like, this is really actually challenging because it challenges us on all sides of the political spectrum. It challenges, if you're conservative, liberal, traditional, progressive, it challenges us all. Because if you're, maybe if you're a little, leaning a little more conservative, you'd say, well, no, justice, doing the right thing, that's what's paramount. If you're maybe on the progressive side, you'd say, no, social justice, elevating other people, that's what's ultimately paramount. And on the political world, we sort of have this, you know, duel going on currently right now, right? That's kind of the, the, the moment that we're living in. It's like, man, what, what is, are there certain things that are objectively right, wrong, true, false, or is it the elevating of people that's of ultimate highest good? This is, these are ethical questions, right, that we're wrestling with as a society. But what Paul says is, no, there's actually a different guiding highest principle. And this is the highest principle of God. And it's actually love. Now, this is tough because where justice might lead us, doing the right thing always, might be different from where love leads us sometimes. Now that's interesting, that's a very, this is tough, this is challenging. This is really challenging, right? And the, the classic example is, if you were living in World War II Germany and you were hiding people in your house, if they came and said to you, hey, are you hiding people in your house because we wanna take them to a concentration camp? Would you say yes or no? Would you lie to them? Would you tell the truth? What is right? What is good? What is evil? What is wrong? If your highest principle is always doing black and white, the right thing, always telling the truth, no matter the cost, always being honest. It might cause you to give someone up. If your highest value is love, perhaps you might choose something different. So love leads us to very different things. And this is really, really challenging to us. So three more verses, then we're done. Galatians 5.11, Paul moves on to say, if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, right? This is his way of saying, if, if I continue preaching salvation by works of the law, why am I still being persecuted? 
In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. What does he mean, the offense of the cross? Well, this word offense, it's a word that's familiar to us. It's scandalon. This is the Greek in the original language, scandalon. And what scandalon means is probably what you think it means because it's connected to one of our English words, scandal. He's essentially saying the cross is very inherently scandalous to us. Why is it scandalous to us? Especially to religious people. Why is that? Because when your salvation is wrapped up in how righteous you are, the allowing in of unrighteous people, people who don't live up to the standard, it feels very offensive because you feel like, well, I've done all these things. I've I've done what's right. They didn't do what's right. How come they're in? I I met all the prerequisites. It's like applying to med school. I know some of you, that's, that's something on your mind in the future. It's like applying to med school. I did everything I could. I studied for the test. I did everything right. This person didn't study. They didn't do anything. And all of a sudden they're in. What's going on? It feels offensive. Right. And this is why Jesus always got the reputation that he got at the time. This is why the Pharisees always said, this guy who eats with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. Because he's, what is he doing? Why is he associating himself with these people? Right. But I've just become more and more convicted, man. We, we have to let the cross remain offensive. It, it, it has to offend us. It should be offensive. Because the moment I start to think that I can make it on my own, man. I've lost it. So what does Paul say in 13? He says, you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not, let your, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What is he saying? He's saying there's two types of slavery, really, that's happening here. There are two types of slavery. There's the slavery to the flesh, and there's a slavery to works-based religion. And these, these, these are constant like tide, like whirlpools pulling us in on either side. They're constant, like on the ditches on the side of the road. They're constantly pulling us in. Either we're slaves to the flesh. I'm just going to do whatever I want because it feels good. And those of you who've lived like that, you know, you've probably felt the cost. I know that I have. And then on the other side, there's slavery to workspace religion. Man, I'm going to try and climb the mountain on my own. But Paul says, nah, there's a middle way. There's the way of faith. Faith working it out through love. And that's why he says, okay, here's the guardrail. You have your freedom? Yeah, you have your freedom. But don't use your freedom for opportunity to the flesh. Freedom doesn't mean, okay, I just get to live however I want, do whatever I want. But instead, Paul says, this is a rearranging of priorities is what's happening here. This is, a, this is essentially the time that you would once spend pursuing whatever you want, use that time instead to love and serve others kind of rearranging priorities. Okay, God, you're not, I don't have to work on this checklist anymore. Well, the time I would have spent on the checklist, now I'm going to spend on love. Okay, God, you're, you're calling me out of just pursuing whatever feels good, whatever I want to do. But the time I would have spent on that, I'm going to serve on love, serve on loving others. It really, in a lot of ways, I think, creates the boundaries that I think we inherently feel are lacking with this type of message. Because really, And Rob Bell, author Rob Bell, he puts this really well. He says, the more love you're living in, the more boundaries you'll have. The more love you're living in, man, the more boundaries you'll have. The more you love yourself, the more boundaries you'll have. No, I'm definitely finding that. The more love you have for others, the more boundaries you'll have when you treat in the way that you treat them. The more love you have for the earth, the more boundaries you'll have. The more it it goes on and on. The more love you have, this is why this is why marriage is a thing, right? You get together, you make a commitment, and you have certain boundaries around your marriage because you have love. It's not that there was a list that you had to keep, but you love them, so you create boundaries. Final verse, and then we'll end. 
Galatians 5.14. Paul says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is really where God has been going the whole time throughout, throughout the journey. I'm just going to shoot off a few verses. I have them on the screen, but we can just zoom through. This is where God has been going the whole time. We see this in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Some people say, well, where is this in the Old Testament? Is this like God is changing everything up in the New Testament? But as I've said, we see it throughout the whole journey, right? In Deuteronomy, God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So he sets this from the very beginning, right? When he calls the people of Israel, this is love. Th this is the main thing. Love God. Then when Jesus comes, he expands on this. Matthew 22, he says, hmm, what are, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God, love other people. So he expands it to include other people. And then by the end of Jesus's ministry, in the end of Matthew, he, he paints a picture of the judgment. And when he describes the judgment, what he describes as the criteria of the judgment is loving other people primarily. What's really interesting, he says, if you've done it for the least of these, you've done it for me. Whatever you do, he identifies with people. So whatever love you show other people, you're actually showing to God. And so finally, in Galatians, Paul says, loving others is the whole law, which, which leads us to our final confession of the day that the law was always love the whole time. The law was always love. Love was always the law. Love was always the thing that God was pulling us into. It was always the higher standard. It just took a while because we're, we're a little slow sometimes. But what he's calling us into is something higher, something greater, something more costly, something really difficult, but something ultimately way more fulfilling, way more, well, it's infinite. And what it gives. So, as I was on my Black History Month search for meaningful history recently, I <clears throat> found this quote by Harriet Tubman that, that really uh, spoke to me. She says something really interesting. She says this, she says, I could have saved thousands more slaves, right? If only I had been able to convince them they were slaves. Right? She's, she's asked, man, what must it have been like to save hundreds of, of slaves out of captivity? She says, man, I could have saved so many more if only they had even known that they were slaves. They didn't even know. They didn't even. They were so trapped in the reality of being slaves. And so I just had a question for you that I thought I would ask, not out of condemnation, but out of love. Are you a slave? And Paul tells us there's two types. Slaves to the flesh, doing whatever I want, just because it feels good. Slaves to empty workspace religion. I think it's an important question for us to ask ourselves because Paul says, no, there's another way, there's another way, there's a better way that God's calling us into. It's a higher way. It's more costly, but it's more fulfilling. It'll give us what we actually want in our heart, what we long for. And it's the way of love, is faith working itself out through love. So if you feel like you're a slave, or maybe it's just time for you to, to, to examine in your heart, get, get alone with God and ponder, man, 
have I been a slave? Because I want to be free. God, I want to be free. And I think the good news is, man, what the good news is, is just like the slaves who are waiting for the Emancipation Proclamation, the good word has come down not from Abraham Lincoln, not from the president's office, but from God himself. And he says, you're free. You're free. You don't have to be a slave anymore. You're actually free. But you have to take it. You have to choose to take it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you made us free. God, sometimes we don't believe it. We don't believe the truth. God, sometimes we're so fixated on truth that we don't believe your truth, that you're speaking to us directly, God, that we're free. So God, would you just help us to lay down, like the song says, God, let me lay down all my tradition, God, all my religion, not because religion or tradition are inherently bad or negative in some way, God, but because sometimes they take the replacement of you. Would you help us to remember we're free? We pray this in your name, amen.